All right. Well, last the last uh, few weeks, we've been transitioning into um, uh, Solomon's kingdom and away from David's kingdom. David is has has passed, and Solomon has taken over as as king. And we saw um, last week that Solomon had you know a, a, a pretty strange first year. Uh, on the throne or first little bit on the throne, trying to gain access to the throne. His brother tried to take over and, and all of this. And and eventually he gains access to the throne, right? As his father, David passes and David grants to him the throne. Uh, and they have to do it in kind of a politically savvy way so that Solomon sits on the throne and Adonijah who tries to take over the throne is uh, put to shame in the eyes of the people. And that works. And Solomon gains access to the throne. And some, somewhere between the time where he accesses the throne, and uh, which is that, that first year, typically considered year zero, um, that first year of accession, somewhere between then and the fourth year when he begins construction on the temple, um, Solomon makes a, a um, Solomon made a, made a treaty with Pharaoh of Egypt, which involved among other things, Solomon getting Pharaoh's daughter in marriage. And we looked at this last week, and, and it, it does kind of strike us as a little bit odd because there's certainly a prohibition against taking on many wives for the, the kings that Moses gives that prohibition. And yet at the same time, it seems that the author tends to paint these first few years of Solomon's uh, reign as, as pretty um, a, a positive experience for the nation of Israel as we're going to see tonight as well. And so what do we really make of this? Well, it seems as though what we're to, to, to think is that what started off as perhaps done out of ignorance and, you know, that, that, uh, Solomon was just unwise at the time before God had granted him wisdom and before he asked for it, um, ends up coming back later to be one of those kinds of sins of marrying foreign women that ends up turning his heart away from the Lord. And we're going to see that, but we won't see that until about chapter 11 or so of 1 Kings. And so uh, the, the chapters up until then, Solomon seems to be pretty um, with it and a, and a pretty good king. And so um, he takes Pharaoh's daughter and marries her, and we, we're left thinking, I don't love this, and, and this, this is, seems to be maybe a foreshadowing of things to come. And then, the, But 1 Kings 3, on the whole, is dominated by Solomon requesting from the Lord wisdom. The Lord was willing to grant him whatever he wanted as probably something of a test of faith, and Solomon prayed for the Lord to give him wisdom. And so the Lord did give him wisdom as he, as, as chapter three, we saw is bookended by him uh, going to Gibeon where the Mosaic tabernacle is. And then also standing before the ark at the end of chapter three, uh, he is kind of presented as the new King that is uh, in God's eyes approved of. And the reason we know he's approved of is because God not only granted him the request that he asked for, which was wisdom, but he also gave him the things that he didn't ask for along life and wealth as well. And so he's going to give to Solomon quite a bit of success so that Solomon really doesn't have any excuse to turn away from him 
um, in the end. And so having been promised wisdom, Solomon uh, has this wisdom tested uh, at the end of chapter three when he when he's presented a situation in which he has no corroborating evidence. He has uh, two people in a she said, she said kind of situation where each are claiming the living baby for themselves. And so Solomon adjudicates that matter in front of the, the watching court, if you will, uh, and determines rightly whose child it really is. And, um, and this is kind of, this leads to at the very end of chapter three, some amazement on the part of all the rest of Israel. And you can see, I didn't include it in the verse packet, but at the very end of, of, of chapter three in verse 28, it says, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So you have, uh, if you'll think back with me, going all the way back to David's reign, David had this promise to him. There was a, there, there was a, uh, a, a general favor of, of David being a, a man after God's own heart as Samuel went to anoint him. And so we, we are told very early on before David even is anointed that this kid is going to be really special. And David ends up being a, a, a really repentant, uh, God-honoring, and seeks to follow after the Lord in spite of his many sins. And he tries to build the Lord a temple. He wants to build the Lord a temple. And God tells him, no, under no circumstances will you build a temple for me, but your son will. And he makes a promise to David that he's always going to have uh, his son on the throne and that he's going to raise up from his lineage uh, uh, an everlasting kingdom. And so we go into Solomon's reign with a good bit of anticipation that since he is David's son, we're looking forward to what Solomon has to offer. Perhaps Solomon is that uh, king that is promised all the way back in Genesis chapter three, before the uh, man and woman are exiled from the garden, that this man is going to be the one to exercise dominion and squash the head of the serpent. Remember, that's the promise, is that there's going to be an offspring to come who is going to uh, crush the head of the, the serpent. And so we're always, the whole Old Testament is looking for that seed. And in some ways, modern day Jews are still looking for that seed to come. And that, and because the whole Old Testament is brimming with anticipation that, that, that there's going to be a seed come that's going to fulfill that promise back in Genesis chapter three. And we see that in even in Genesis 12 of God selecting a family. There's a lineage that's traced all the way through Genesis. We're waiting on that that seed. And so when David comes along and the promise is narrowed to David's lineage being the lineage that's going to be on the throne forever, and that his son in particular is going to raise up and build a house for the Lord, we're, we have high hopes and high expectations for Solomon in particular. Now, we're getting close to Solomon beginning the construction on the temple. 
Chapter five, which will be in next week, is going to be one where, uh, you know, Solomon's beginning to gather materials and put it to, put everything in order. In fact, even really a little bit in this chapter, he's going to put things in order for building the temple. And in chapter six, he's really going to begin the commencement of the temple. And the large portion from then on of of Solomon's time is going to be construction of the temple, uh, uh, consecration of the temple, and things like that. And so that's that's a big deal for the nation of Israel to not only move into the promised land, but now also have a place to worship God and not just a place to worship God, but a place where God actually comes and meets with his people. I mean, will you think about that for just a moment? What, what we know to be true about the Ark of the Covenant being the mercy seat on top. You remember Uzzah back in, in 2 Samuel, reaches out his hand to stop the ark from hitting the ground, and God kills him right there on the spot because, it, you know, Uzzah's hand isn't cleaner than the dirt and, you know, was not fit to approach the Lord in that way, and so he kills Uzzah. But now that ark of the covenant it will, will come into a place where the Lord will meet with his people. It is a place where heaven and earth will come together. And Solomon is going to be the person who puts that together, who, who, who builds that in the promised land. That's a huge deal for uh, all of the nation of Israel. And I think we're going to get glimpses in chapter four to that tonight of just how big a deal that really is. So let's let's take a look at, at chapter four of what all is going to uh, happen here. Um, so Solomon has this wisdom that's been granted to him and everybody sees its effect. He actually does have a lot of wisdom coming to him and he's able to adjudicate for them rightly. Um, and then, so like wildfire, the king's wisdom spreads far and wide and became proverbial. Everybody that hears about Solomon's wisdom knows about Solomon's wisdom, and it doesn't just spread to Israel. The rumors and the whispers of his wisdom spread all over the Eastern world, and people come from everywhere just to hear from him, to talk to him, to see if the rumors are true. And so his astuteness may be seen also in his political organization of the kingdom, which we're going to see in just a moment. He appointed certain or he appoints certain court officials, and he also divides the kingdom into 12 administrative districts over which he placed officers. And I want to talk about the significance of that in just a second. But look at um, four. 1 to 19 in 1st Kings here. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elahoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Administrative assistants, I think is the right word. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Ad 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 Adoniram, the son of Abda, 
was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were, the na- were their names. This is what always trips me up. Here we go. Ready? Ben-Hur. That was easy. Uh, in the hill country of Ephraim. Ben-Decker in Machez. Sha'albim, Beth Shemesh, and Elon Beth Hanan, Ben Hesed in Aruboth, to him belong Soko and all the land of Hefer, Ben Abi, Ben Abinadab, and all Napheth Dor. He had Tapheth, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife, Baana, the son of Ahilud and Ta'anach, Megiddo, and all Beth Shin, that is beside Zarethan, below Jezreel, and from Beth Shin to Abel Mehaloah, as far as the other side of Jokmiam. Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Ido, in Mahinaim. Ahimaz, in Naphtali. He had taken Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Hushai, in Asher and Beloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua in Issachar, Shimei, the son of Ella in Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the, of the Amorites and of Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. All right. Whew, I made it through all the names. Okay, uh, <laughs> I can hear the applause. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, so we have um, we have Solomon setting up all of his administration, and and so I get it. When you read through four one to nineteen, this would be the part in your you know daily reading or whatever you get to this chapter and you sort of go blah 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 blah, blah and you sort of speed through a lot of it and you get to the end. And I, I can certainly understand that, especially when it comes to names. But sometimes names are are important. Sometimes names draw your attention, and sometimes he'll he'll refer to those names later on. You obviously notice a couple of Solomon's son-in-laws that are sprinkled throughout that are that are uh, pretty high up in the government government naturally, uh, and a couple other things. But really, what the most important part that we can gather from this section is. Uh, some of the bigger concepts that Solomon is actually doing. And these you might not really think of initially, but really he doesn't follow, if you notice, the ancient tribal boundaries that Joshua had established. You remember this? The ancient tribal boundaries are the, you know, the tribe of Manasseh has a certain area. The tribe of Benjamin has a certain area, the tribe of Dan and Judah and things like this. I've got a map here on this slide. I hope you can see it. If you're on a phone, it might be a little small for you, but, um, but you can get the idea as I describe it. You see that 
the, the, the areas that are being described by Solomon in, or by the author of first Kings in this, that Solomon sets up, they don't strictly go by the borders of the territories that are set up by Ephraim and Manasseh. They, they do to some extent, they're loosely aligned with those boundaries, but not totally. And you can see on the map there, there's like a one and a two and, and three as they're mentioned in the text. And then they're, they're sort of over in the areas where those tribal allotments are, but the, the borders of those allotments don't strictly go by the territorial boundaries or the tribal boundaries that were set up in the time of Joshua. And because those tribal boundaries, as it turns out, led to a lot of nationalism amongst those tribes. So, you know, this is my land. These are my people. And what it seems as though Solomon may be doing is he's breaking it up just a little bit differently and putting over each of those people in that area, which wouldn't be, let's say, let's use Ephraim as an example, which wouldn't be strictly the tribe of Ephraim. You'll notice that the land of Hefer over there is a, uh, the number three is right by it, which also includes some of the people of Ephraim. Um, so they would each be over different, uh, if you, not governors, but little uh whatever, uh, perhaps you, you might say, um, mayors or something like that, that would be over those individual, I guess he, he calls them officers that, that you would, they would be over each of those little areas. And so what I, I, su- I suppose is in the mind of Solomon at this point is not just the wealth that's about to come to him as a result of structuring the kingdom this way, but also a, a sense of unity that's going to come to the kingdom as well, that they're all accomplishing the same purpose. And so these districts, you can see, are responsible. And he says there, and I've lost the verse, but it basically says each one was responsible for each month. I think it's verse seven. Each man had to make a make provision for one month of the year. So you've got these 12 officers that are over different portions of the land and over different portions of the people. And so the guy who's over the number one right there might have some people from Ephraim and might have some people from Manasseh overlapping his, his, the people that he's over. And each one of them were responsible essentially for one month of the year. So, you know, Ephraim Manasseh gets January, let's say, and has to, uh, obviously that's not, they don't follow the, our calendar, but anyway, the, you get the idea. It takes, takes some of the provisions from their people and bubbles them up to Jerusalem, to the capital, to uh, Solomon. And so they make provision for the court for every month. And so obviously it's a considerable task and, and there's obviously a lot of manpower that's required and all of that kind of stuff, but you have a governor uh, or an, an officer over each one of these, and then you have more or less a, uh, uh, an official, a governor that's over uh, all 12 of these men. And their job basically is to provide from the wealth of the land up to the capital. And then what we're going to see in a moment is that all of that wealth that bubbles up to the capital then also makes its way back down. Um, so to use maybe like a modern example, you pay your taxes to the city and then you, as a result of paying your taxes to the city, your roads are paved and your, you know, th- things like that, uh, 
you know, work well for you. You have, you have police officers that are guarding the city and things like that. So you pay taxes, but you get a benefit on the back end from it. And that's essentially what happens. Uh, Solomon is taking in uh, taxes from these individual territories. And then the benefit to the nation is obviously the wealth of the nation grows and each person is going to benefit from it as we're going to see in just a moment. Um, and so the, the text then implies that God's gift of wisdom not doesn't just extend to Solomon's ability to kind of make decisions about how people should, you know, decisions over a baby that we saw in chapter three, but it's actually the ordering of life and all the affairs of the kingdom. So there is, as, as it were, a wideness to biblical wisdom, that it's not just applied in a particular area, but it's also, it applies to uh, not just making moral and, and, and accurate judgments, but also to efficiency, to orderly structure that keeps the chaos from the kingdom from, from you know, ruining all the things that, uh, that David had already established or from, um, you know, from, you know, being overly wasteful. And so Solomon is not just wise in the affairs of people and making good decisions there, but he's also politically structuring his kingdom so that it, it maximizes the wealth of the, of the nation. And you're going to see in just a moment that he, it, that does work. He really does maximize the wealth. I've tried to put all the words that you need to write down in blue and underline to make it a little bit more obvious if that, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but if you're on an iPhone, especially, I figured, you know, you, you probably can't have a hard time seeing it anyway. Um, so, uh, so Solomon is applying all of this. And, and that's, I think the two big concepts that, that we pull out of here is that that's of significant interest is, is that, but what, what we then also see is that because of the, the boundaries that are being described to us here and that are about to be described to us, it seems that Solomon's reign is fulfilling promises of Joshua's conquest, but not just those. It's also demonstrating to us uh, his promises to Abraham. So under Solomon, we're going to see this life become somewhat of a utopia, as it were, or at least it's depicted that way, of of being peaceful and harmonious and and safe and joyous and prosperous and so there's you know tons of, uh, of this blessing that's coming to the nation and you see that in verse 20 look at look at verse 20 there it says Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea they ate and drank and were happy um so and, and then if you'll, if you'll look at Genesis 22, 17, remember, this is a promise of God to Abraham. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as, as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy. So you, you have the author helping you understand that what's going on in Solomon's kingdom is a direct fulfillment of what was promised under Joshua's conquest, what was promised to Abraham, that, um, that, you know, Solomon is, you know, putting asunder all of his, all of Israel's enemies. And not only that, 
but that description of being the sand on the seashore, um, that was a promise made to Abraham, but between Abraham and now, all we've ever seen is that phrase applied to Israel's enemies. So like, as an example, Joshua eleven fourteen, 14, um, he says, uh, and they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. It's the other, the other people. And the Midianites in Judges 7, 12, Midianites and Amalekites uh, and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in, in abund- is in abundance. So from, from the time of Abraham all the way up to Solomon, that phrase had always just been applied to Israel's enemies, these false Israels, if you will. And this, for the first time, it's actually applied under Solomon's reign to the nation of Israel. So you're getting the understanding that, no, no, all those were false. And now this has really been, you know, this has really come to Israel finally uh, under the reign of Solomon. Okay, so we've we've got that you know we get that uh that his structure of the kingdom and the wealth that that we should anticipate coming and so now we're about to see it so solomon's kingdom uh solomon not not only rules over israel uh and what the territories that david gave to him he also ruled over all the kingdoms from the euphrates to the land of the philistines as far as the border of egypt and this area is we'll, we're going to see defined as Tifsa and Gaza. And uh, all the way from Tifsa to, to Gaza, and you can see that uh, Tifsa is in the top right corner of this map. Gaza is towards the bottom left corner, but Gaza is one of the five main cities of the Philistines. And so I want to read uh, 21 to 34, and you're going to see just the wealth here. But I want you to pay attention to words that are used and your familiarity with these words and phrases, okay? Just just really open your ears and try to pay attention to the way Solomon's kingdom is being described by the author. He's doing this on purpose. Listen to this. Solomon ruled over all the kingdom from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, which we find out is uh, about 220 liters. Um, So 220 liters per day of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture fed cattle. That's grass fed beef. That's good. A hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Um, 
Can everybody still hear me? I got some weird pop-ups on my screen. Did, it, can you hear me, Shannon? Okay, good. Um, sorry, okay, good. Uh, I got a weird pop-up on my screen that said my audio had changed, and so I just wanted to be sure. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan and even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and, and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people uh, of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan Ezraite. Well, you all know how wise he is. And He-Man, you know how wise He-Man is, Calcol, Darda, the son of the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of, the tr of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He, he spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. All right. Now, some of these things that you, you read in here, you're like, what in the world is that about? All of these, I think, are with intention and they're, uh, they're, they're serving a purpose here. But he, um, so he, he's, he's demonstrating that there's this large area that Solomon uh, reigns over. And this is, I think it's very interesting when he describes this because it corresponds to the ideal extent of Israel's dominion, which is promised in Genesis 15, 18. And it overlaps a little bit with the dominion we see with from David as he, as he begins to conquer lands and things like that. But if you'll look at Genesis 15, 18, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So what is, what is it that he says of Solomon? Well, first that he possessed the land that was promised to Abraham from the river Euphrates all the way down to the river in Egypt, to the, to the border of Egypt, to the Nile. So um, the, the land that was promised to Abraham as the ideal extent of the land is fulfilled there in Solomon. And the author of First Kings wants you to know that. In fact, I think in this passage from verse 20 all the way to 34, there was a lot of references all the way back to Genesis, not just to the, to the land, but to, to several other things. There are these displays of wisdom that bring him glory beyond the glory of any of the kings of his time. And what we see is a partial restoration of the bright radiance of Eden, 
of the land of Eden. Notice in verse four, in verse 24, the, the author says, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza. And, and in addition to that, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, not just over the land, but the people that are there in it. They're submitting to his dominion. And so where have we heard that before? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, he set them with a dominion mandate that the kingdom of God meant that the one who was over the kingdom of God, Adam in that case, was given uh, uh, the, the privilege of, of reigning and his progeny, all of his children were made in the image of God and therefore they were to have dominion, to spread the domain of God around the earth, to subdue the earth as it were. That not only includes animals and, and land, but that includes um, you know, uh, people as well. And what I mean by that is, is it would be a structured, ordered society is what I mean. And so there would be a, 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 uh, an order to the society. So the significance of the passage that we just read above from 1 to 19 is not just that this is going to produce him wealth and that he's going to that that he orders the kingdom in such a way and that he has wisdom, but that he's actually exercising the dominion mandate of the kingdom of God, where he's putting everyone under the rule and reign of God. That's what he's doing. He's putting everyone under the rule and reign of God with his wisdom. And his, so his, his influence and his sphere of influence is, is, um, is spreading. And we also see people coming far and wide, even from the East, paying tribute to him and, and seeing if the rumors are true, uh, people of all nations in verse 34 came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the Kings of the earth who had heard of this wisdom. What did we hear the promise to Abraham through you? All the people of the earth will be blessed. Well, these kings coming and really submitting in one way or another to Solomon is essentially the beginnings of the fulfillment of that, uh, that prophecy. Of course, there would be the anticipation that Solomon would conquer it all and would, would, would really have these uh, uh, territories under his, under his dominion. But this is already, we're already getting the, the brimmings, the, the beginnings of this uh this mandate that was given to Adam early on as coming to fruition. And then we see that Solomon here has dominion. The author uses that same phrase that we saw that same verb of have dominion that we saw back in Adam's commission at the very beginning of the Bible. And by having dominion over the nations that surround Israel, Solomon fulfills or is we're, we're anticipating him continuing to fulfill the Adamic mandate to rule and subdue the earth. There's a big however in all of this, right? What is the thing that ends up turning Adam, the new Adam, the new Adam's heart away from God? It's the women, right? We're, we're watching, and the author of First Kings, I think, is giving you these little breadcrumbs to clue you in 
we're watching Adam fall all over again. Not only is Solomon kind of, there's these, these kind of whispers of this Edenic paradise that he's created, each person eating under his own vine and under his own fig tree and things like this. But there's this, that he, this sense that he has dominion, that all the kings of the earth are submitting to him. So we're, we're watching this happen. A couple of chapters from now, he's going to create the temple. And the temple is going to have all of this Edenic imagery built into it. It's going to look the, from the trees and the things like that that are carved on the wall. They're all going to have this sort of Edenic paradise built into it. So here's Adam in the midst of building Eden. And at the end, what ends up turning his heart away from the promises of God, but essentially women that were from pagan territories under pagan kings that come into the kingdom and basically so that are ruled by the serpent and they're going to ask him basically did god really say this is the same lie we've heard from the beginning and solomon's going to fall prey to it again so um so here's solomon set up as kind of this you know uh, new Adam, and we have lots of high hopes for God's kingdom uh, to be established here through uh, Solomon. And consistent with this portrait, uh, Solomon's knowledge of the natural world also comes about where he has these living things, these beasts and birds and creepers and fish and all of this that he writes about. And it says he he had all these uh, he, he not only knew all their names, right, but he, he was able to write about them and tell them, you know, great details about them and, and wax eloquently about all of them. You'll remember back in uh, Genesis chapter two, when God uh, brings the animals by Adam and whatever he called them, those were, that was uh, its name. You'll see this from time to time. As you go through the, the Bible, there's these little illusions. Uh, I've heard the best image that I ever heard depicted of this, of this very thing that the biblical authors do from time to time is, you, you know, like on web pages where you get these little hyperlinks and your mouse hovers over them and your mouse changes from a pointer to like a, a finger, a hand like this that you click on and, it, and it's going to take you to another web page. It's, it's almost as if in the biblical text, these, the biblical authors, the New Testament is latent with this, but so is the Old Testament that throughout it's like there's these phrases and words and sentences and, and, you know, word usages and things like that, that are hyperlinked back to um, places in various other places in the, the old Testament that it's meant to draw your attention to here is Adam. So I'm already thinking about Adam and I'm already thinking about Adam having dominion and giving the charge of dominion now fulfilled in Solomon. And now I get to this very end of this passage and here is Solomon waxing eloquently about the beasts of the field. So naturally I'm thinking about Adam as well and God marching the animals by Adam and whatever he called them, that was, his, that was its name. And so uh, Solomon is sort of the chief exemplar of the new Adamic race. He's, he's, uh, he's sort of, you know, point man, as it were, the king of this kingdom. And, and so he is... Um, He's reigning over the, the race of the nation of Israel that's as countless as the stars and the sand. And so 
He's already got some of the fulfillment of Abraham. He's already starting to fulfill some of the promises uh, that were given to Adam or that Adam was supposed to fulfill and couldn't. So the point is of all of this is that verse or chapter four is really building us up to have really high hopes and high expectations about Solomon. But as the Old Testament authors do time and time again, is they get to the end of the story and go, nope, not him either. And so we're left at the end of the Old Testament with just the big lack of fulfillment. We're left at the end of the Old Testament going, nope, not him either. Well, who is it going to be then? And when are we going to get this guy? Which is why the New Testament opens the way it does. Uh, because the New Testament authors have found the guy and they're, they're wanting to make sure you understand that. Um, so because this new uh, wise Adam um, sits on the throne, the entire kingdom, he says, ba- the author says, basks in his riches. So Solomon has his own wondrous table. All the nations are giving him the garden of plenty. But what you'll notice what happens is the glory that's brought to the capital city, the glory that is brought to the new Adam, the glory that's brought to the point man over the kingdom is not zero sum. It's not as though the nation of Israel brings him their glory and they benefit not from it. No, no, no. That would be like the kingdoms of the rest of the world. This kingdom is different. This kingdom, all the people stream in, bringing him their glory. And what do we see but that every person also benefits? The glory grows. It blesses all the nation of Israel. And in fact, it blesses all the nations of the world as they stream in. Uh, Solomon has this table and all the nations of the world have access to it. Doesn't that sound like somebody? Um, So he has this garden of plenty. People are coming in uh, and are able to, to glean from his wisdom. And here we go. Every, it's described every man has a vine and every man sits under his own vine and his own fig tree. So every man is prosperous. Every man is prosperous. And what we're going to see is in the, when we get to the prophets, when they describe the destruction of, um, of, of Israel, and um, or when they des- sorry when they describe future prosperity of Israel, they come back to this author's very same phrase, another hyperlink in the prophets, where they come back to this very same phrase like Micah four four. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In Zechariah 3.10, in that day, declares the Lord, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So the description of future peace and prosperity of in that day, in the day of the Lord, is going back to that Solomonic splendor. Remember Solomon's kingdom where every man was under his own vine and fig tree? That's what it's going to be like in the day of the Lord, where you're all going to prosper from the Lord's kingdom. And when the prophets talk about Israel's fall and they lament Israel's fall, 
they do it in that same vernacular, like Isaiah 34, 4. Uh, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. What is Isaiah describing? But the fall of of, of the nation of Israel, of that of the sacrificial system and things like that, that, that fall is a reversal of this Solomonic kingdom, this splendor. It's, a, it's an undoing of it. The vine loses its leaves and the fig tree loses its leaves. And then what happens? But we see this picture and this painting of the last days. The book of Micah in particular paints this picture of the kingdom of the last days in which the swords are beaten into plowshares, in which everyone sits without fear under vine and fig tree, in which the nations come to pilgrimage to Zion, the gathering around Solomon's table, all the nations come in as described in 1 Kings 4, and it represents, in essence, a kind of messianic banquet that they're describing is going to happen, and they're using it with the language of Solomon's kingdom. So in other words, the prophets are telling us as we get toward the end, there's going to be a day when the glories of 1 Kings 4, Solomon's kingdom, are restored to the people of the world where the people are able to come and they're able to feast at the table of the new Adam. And when they do, they will be able to do so without fear from foreign enemies. Now, this has both a right now fulfillment and a not yet fulfillment. In some ways, this is already accomplished in Jesus. That Jesus came down, died on the cross for your sins. And he very much, by his resurrection, accomplished what was promised by the angel to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. He will save his people from their sins. And in so doing, he has given to his people eternal life. And by giving them eternal life, they are now no longer in fear of anything. In fact, the book of Revelation bears this out. The rest of the New Testament bears this out. That because we have been transferred and our citizenship has been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, because our citizenship is in heaven from from whom we we await uh, Christ, because all of these things have been secured for us, because we have been, in Ephesians 1, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, which is a down payment, an understanding that we will one day rise from the dead, because all of those things have happened already, We have no fear of even death. So, in some ways, we are already eating under our own vine fig tree. 
We are already experiencing what the prophets longed for. You have to remember that. What the prophets longed for, you live in. Jesus tells you that. They long to see what you're seeing in him. So in some ways, that's already come to fruition. But there will be a day where the new Adam who does sit on the throne, who is the king, who is Jesus, will come to dwell with us permanently. And and the book of Revelation bears out that the, the gates will be open and the nations will stream in just like they're doing now in Solomon's kingdom, except what does John tell us in Revelation? No unclean thing will ever enter it. Meaning that Jesus will sit on the throne. He will have the Solomonic table where everybody is feasting, where we, we not only have no spiritual fear, we have, there's, no, there's no fear of even losing our life. We have eternal life where the sea is no more, death is no more, sin is no more. And not only that, his heart will never be turned away from the Lord. So in some ways, what we're looking at in Solomon and the, the expectation and the hope of the author in 1 Kings 4, we are currently experiencing in Christ's kingdom. And in some ways, we still await for its consummation. All right. Questions? Comments? Hopes, dreams? Fears, expectations? They were uh, all these prophets that we just kind of read from, you know, Micah, yep. Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, were they all well after Solomon? Yes. Or did any of them live and prophesied during the time of Solomon? Um. So Micah is going to be after Solomon. Uh, Yeah, all of them are. All of them are after Solomon. Um, We are going to see a character in, uh, I believe it's 2 Kings, called Micaiah, which a lot of people think is Micah, one and the same. But but yes, all of them are after Solomon. Uh, All all of the prophets, uh, let me think about it for just a second before I say that. Yeah, all of the prophets in our Old Testament are going to be slightly before, during, and after the time of exile in Babylon. Just slightly before, during, and and after the time of, ba- of Babylon. So we're talking um, another 200 years plus uh, before we start getting to a lot of the prophets in uh, the Old Testament. Do we have any indication that Solomon was given direction to change the districts because he was so God was so specific when he divided the 12 tribes and dished out the land to them. I um, just wonder Well okay so let me clarify. Now remember he's not reallocating where they live. And the divisions that were given to the tri- the tribes of Israel were where they would live. Solomon is not touching that. They can still live there. He's putting a uh, mayor or officer over a certain area. So he's not really touching what the Lord had already done through Joshua or what Joshua had already done in that sense. 
but he is sort of creating some, uh, breaking some of the tribal allegiances and fostering a little bit more unity in the nation of Israel as a whole. Does that make sense? I can understand. I can understand the political move there, but what I don't understand is he did not put a mayor who was of that tribe for the political reason, but God specifically put that tribe there together. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and he's not, yeah, mind you, he, he's not, um, he's not reorganizing the tribe. He's not, uh, touching the tribe at all. He's not, uh, reallocating the land. He's not, he's not really doing any of that as much as he is going, Hey, we're one nation. Uh, so probably don't think of it so much as like the United States, him moving the border of Mississippi or something like that, as much as it would be a governor that's over Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia, you know, uh, or, or somebody who's maybe not a governor, but like a, uh, 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 czar, let's say, uh, somebody who, who is sort of over that area who is, whose purpose is to collect all of the tribute from Louisiana to Georgia and bring it to Washington, DC. Um, it, it's specifically for that purpose and not really for any other purpose. But the benefit of it on the backside is it breaks down some of these tribal allegiances that are that are actually destroying Israel. And we're not a part of the design, but we're just a part of their sinful hearts. He's bringing them more together in unity and having the whole the nation as a whole prosper rather than Judah prosper and Manasseh suffer or Manasseh prosper and, you know, uh, you know, Simeon suffer, they're all prospering together because of all their, their wealth. So it's a federal income tax, if you, <laughs> rather than just. Big questions. All right. Well, Good deal. Well, let me uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll get out of here. Thanks for thanks for joining with us, Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for an opportunity to study your Word and um, read from it, and talk about it. And uh, thank you for the questions and and um, the uh, just thinking through the the text of of Scripture. It's a, a a blast. I enjoy it every time and, and I'm so grateful for it. And, um, I, uh, pray that as we think about the text of scripture and we, um, and we reflect on it, that what becomes more and more evident is just how, uh, amazing your word really is and how, uh, so many men uh, in different places around the world, are all telling this same story and just what a blessing that is to know that we see so much of the fulfillment that they're longing for in the old Testament in Jesus. And we have not even plumbed the depths of it yet. And, uh, nor will we ever. And so I'm just, we, may we just be astounded, uh, at how, uh, unparalleled your word really is 
and how much it has to teach us and how much we have to understand and how much appreciation we can have and uh, how much joy and, and love and uh, admiration we can have for what you have done in Christ and how you have tied all the loose ends of the Old Testament together in him. And there, there are no plot holes um, that they've been filled by Christ. And what a marvel that is. And yet we have a massive outstanding promise for which we await of his return. And we long for that day. We wait for that day. And we, I pray that our body together, this church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, will be so united in uh, joy over your word and what you've given to us and over Christ and who you've given to us that we will be uh, overjoyed when we see his return and when we um, partake in his table. Um, I pray that we will be able to see as a body the joy on every person's face when that day comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.